Teguru, everyone. Teguru. Teguru. Welcome, everybody, to our next episode, the Yogananda Awake Minute to Minute podcast. Today, we will be talking about minute 52. So, um, we will talk about Guruji um, still being in Mexico, being disappointed about how things turned out um, um, with Dirananda and the smear campaign. But now he's um, kind of getting the message slowly that he should come back. And there's some beautiful pictures and some music behind it. And we'll see. Um, also, we see Sri Dayamata in there. So, but before we dive into the minute, um, let's welcome back a special guest, Pablo. He came on for the second time. How are you doing today, Pablo? I'm doing great. Glad to be back here, to be sharing this moment, this one minute uh, with you. I mean, it's more than one minute, but the discussion about the one minute with you. <laughs> Pablo, is, Pablo, you're back by popular demand. Like, yes. I think you're like, you know, your YouTube, I don't know if you sent the link to everyone, but like the first like two <laughs> days of your episode being launched, it was like through the roof. It was more popular than Britney Spears for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of like uh, social media contacts, you know, yeah. like a lot of people <laughs> contacted me. Yeah. Yeah, we, we get it, Pablo. You're a big deal. You're a big deal in Brazil. You're also a big deal. <laughs> in France, wherever you go, you're a big deal. <laughs> That's very good. And we can uh, talk a little bit also about Priyank because Priyank was on a two month trip throughout Europe, um, which was one of the reasons why we haven't recorded um, many episodes recently, but you won't notice because our schedule goes on. <laughs> but Priyank, um, can you tell us a little bit about this trip? Yes, you, so some of the astute observer, observers will notice that I had very short hair two episodes ago, <laughs> and now I've got very long hair. Yeah, six weeks have elapsed since we last, or seven or eight weeks since we last recorded. I've been on a campaign with a <clears throat> with Sadhguru, which many of you will know about, and the campaign is about save soil. So we were traveling, well, Sadhguru is traveling from London all the way to India on his motorbike, meeting various government delegations, various environmental groups, various, you know, industry sectors about soil and the condition and the supposed or imminent extinction of our soil in the sense that of de desertification. So, um, yeah, this, this campaign was about that and it goes under, under the umbrella of just generally something called Conscious Planet, just making, you know, going, doing things in a more conscious way and raising our awareness in more ways than just, you know, uh, raping the soil and not having enough crops and basically ruining it future, for future generations. So United Nations say that in 20 or 30 years, we won't have enough agricultural um, crops to sustain or to feed our population of nine plus billion people. Yeah, Chris. Is this, um, when you say under the umbrella of Conscious Planet, is this something similar to Sadhguru's, um, I think, drive to, to plant trees, right? I think I donated quite a while ago to raising money, you know, to, to, toward planting trees. Is this something to do with that? Yes, it is a really good question. So in, in some of his talks, he talks about this. So like 20, 20 years ago, when he first started doing environmental campaigning, 
you talked about something called Project Green Hands, which is like, um, you know, improving improving green cover in, in areas. And then he talked about rivers, which was talking about depleting rivers. And then that's what you what you do, you donated trees for that project. And now this is about soil. So essentially, it's always been about soil, but he's taken a roundabout approach to get there. So yes, it's all linked. It's a quite a long project for him, actually, many decades. And Mike. Nice. I watched a Netflix documentary recently that's called Kiss the Ground. And it was about the quality of our topsoil. And one of the number one things that they told us we shouldn't be doing anymore is tilling the ground and mm. leaving it uncovered for like long stretches of time, because that's when a lot of the microorganisms die in the ground and a lot of the CO2 gets released into the air. Um, is that related at all? Yeah, absolutely. So this is all established. Like this is not like something new that Sadhguru is coming up with. He's just raising, raising the bar of awareness. For, for example, apparently, um, like um, if you have, um, if nine, you know, a hundred years ago, not in 1922, if you have an orange back then, to get the same nutritional content now, you have to have eight oranges, and that mm. is because of the, the way you know our, we've been doing industrial industrial farming we've basically been killing all the microbial biodiversity in the soil and so like the organic content which is what's needed for you know really good yield and really good healthy soil for, for future generations is that it should be like over six percent like a rainforest would obviously be over 15 percent etc the soil would just be alive and that's how it needs to be if, if it's if it's to like you know sustain us for going forward whereas what we're seeing is um basically desertification and then you can't grow crops or you have to pump it with fertilizer to, to make anything grow apparently 12 that would you believe this Twelve thousand years ago Saudi Arabia was a rainforest. <laughs> so if we if we go proceed with this uh, way of doing things, then um, yeah, don't think that we can't create deserts wherever we live, even if it's in tropical climates. But anyway, Chris. Yeah, yeah, I I I thought that the desertification to a grand extent was due to the wider uh, climate change issues over many many millennia, but. Um, Interesting, and I, I just had a thought. Like, if if anyone, you know, whenever I'm listening to this and I'm watching, you know, videos on Sadhguru, he's talking about it. You know, we I have land here and planting agroforests and stuff like that here. But for many people, like, what what can they do? How can they support it? Yeah, so this is really so the SaveSoil.org. Um, they've got a little, um, they've got a little pack that you can basically write to your local member of parliament or local, um, you know, representative, and just. You know, Sadhguru is doing the work in terms of, um, you know, speaking to the UN and he's speaking at the COP summit in, in a week or so. And by the time this we published, we already have done that. But he's he's basically raising this issue at the highest level, but he needs all of us to actually raise it with our local representatives, because if we don't care about it, then no one's going to care about, you know, a Sadhguru or any other scientist that raises the issue. It's the people that have to raise, have the impetus. Yeah, Mike. You're talking about COP Summit, you're not talking about the big stand at the Liverpool Stadium. I heard like, like what you said about fertilizer, that um, when they started using fertilizer in the 50s, 
that you just needed to add a, a tiny bit of it and it had tremendous results. And now because our topsoil has eroded so much, you need to add tons of it to get the same yields that you got 50 years ago. Yeah, but it's, and it's just unsustainable. Like right now, like um, the average, like in each country is different, but like the average farm in Europe, for example, will have like 0.8% uh, bite of um, organic content in the soil. And the rest mm -hmm. of it, you're, you're making up the nutritional content by artificial means. It's just, a, yeah. so as it reduces the organic content, the, it's just more and more unsustainable. And there's a tipping point where no matter how much chemicals you put in now, it's gonna, nothing is gonna grow. Interesting. Fascinating subject. Um, <laughs> love to talk about this more. Um, let's, let's move to minute 52. Um, Minute 52 is, um, like I, I said in the intro, um, Yogananda is in Mexico. And you see some beautiful shots. You see mostly shots of him. You see him pensive. You see him um, not, not really regretting his choices, but he, he's done with things. He is like in the mood where he's like, I've done my work there. The things don't didn't work out 100%, but I, I did my job, Divine Mother, send me back to India. That's what I really want. Um, I want to be there with my kids in Ranchi or in Dihika, and they really appreciate my work. And he felt like not appreciated there. And you see some really nice pictures um, where he stands on the beach. Um, you see him, uh, uh, you see the waves in the background. And you see um, different kinds of um, buildings also. And then it uh, switches to um, before, before that, um, you see um, brother uh, Vishwananda. You see him in Babaji's cave and you see him uh, meditating there. And it, it, has, a, it has a very, um, uh, contemplative vibe. I feel like it's because Guruji in the in the minute before they said, you know, whenever Guruji had uh, issue, issues to deal with, the place he went to to deal with them was within, right? So I imagine when he was in Mexico, he was meditating there a lot, com contemplating, um, talking to Divine Mother, asking her for guidance, where to go next. Um, then the next card I see here, it says here, taking the dust off the ground. Um, what does that uh, What does that mean for you? So we see um, Brother Vishwananda go into, mm -hmm. I think it's Mahavtar Babaji's cave, right? I mm -hmm. think that's where he is. And um, before he enters, you'll see he takes the dust off the feet, off, not off the feet, mm -hmm. off the ground of the cave before he enters and applied it to his head. So the significance of that is uh, pretty deep. Um, so I think you would, you'd know that, um, you know, when, when Christ, Christ was around, for example, people would, would bow at his feet, you know, touch their forehead to his feet, for example. And in India, this is a big um, custom. So anyone that's considered revered or elder even, in the family, um, sometimes, uh, you know, in a devotional way, a wife to a husband, um, 
they take the dust off the feet of anyone they're considered, you know, spiritually or in a revered way. So they take the dust off the ground. In this case, Brother Vishwananda's taking the dust off the ground where Mahathir Babaji walked. So it's mm -hmm. taking it even one stage further. And then they're applying it to their head and, and you know, and their forehead and, and the chakras. So it's kind of like making use of a consecrated atom that may be there still from that time where the divine you know the divine that was fully manifested in Mahathir Babaji was was there and I thought that was a little it was less than a second but is it's so important for example um uh, you know when, when when you go to Vrinda um Mathura which is uh, where Krishna spent um where, where Krishna was born there's a um there's a there's a whole group of like temples right now so it's a very holy city we don't know where you know exactly he was born but it was around that area but um whenever for example Udhava who was Krishna's cousin um when he visited Mathura and he before entering the precincts he not only did he take the dust off the ground he completely prostrated himself on the ground and touched his forehead to the ground so this is you know this is like a level of devotion that you know is, is pretty immense um so i when i went to mathura i ha unfortunately hadn't read about this i just went in without doing any of didn't putting myself in this devotional frame of mind but that is how you would approach a place of this level of significance nice. uh, chris you were saying yeah yeah it, it it's a good um good thing to pick up on in this minute um i was looking at the <clears throat> the little details um, in that you know few seconds of a clip that they've shown, and to me, uh, being relatively ignorant of, of these practices, maybe uh, like maybe one, once upon a time that you were uh, preempt, but <clears throat> it it made me curious that I've I've watched you know I've watched videos of Sadhguru online. He's a physical being that many would consider uh, as their guru. Now we uh, would have chosen Yogananda as, as our guru, but he's not physically, you know, with us still, unless, you know, maybe you, maybe you would have some experience. <laughs> no, I don't know. But generally speaking, you know, he's not physically here, so we don't have a physical guru. So, so he's, so he's passed on, but he's with us in a, in a different plane. So we can't really pranam and bow to the feet of our guru. And when I see people doing it to sad guru, he often says, no, you know, don't bother with that, you know, stand up, please. You know, he often looks a little bit almost embarrassed, I would say, or not quite embarrassed, maybe the right word, but he would say, simply put, like, you know, get up. Yeah, you know, uh, what, 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 what's in general thoughts? What, what are you Oh, start? I've got a good theory on that because I think he, to retain credibility amongst the scientific community against, you know, Muslims, against people of other faiths, that this would consider this kind of thing sacrilege because you only bow to God, for example, in some faiths. And even though some may consider Sadhguru on par with God or a representative, whatever you want to call it, um, if, you, if, you, if, you, if, you, if he shows that, or if he shows that his devotees are doing that, then it takes away that branch of the audience that you know, would otherwise miss his message. For example, saving soil and conscious planet doesn't require you to have any affinity or any like, any, um, perception of Sadhguru as any anything other than just a regular human being so I think he plays uh, he plays on the, the way he's his devotees follow him very very well uh, and that, that would cater to virtually everyone on the planet so you don't need to 
consider him anyone other than just a just a regular human being. I know obviously we you, you probably know that he's something significantly more than an ordinary average Joe. Yeah, Pablo. Yeah, no, it's interesting that Chris mentioned that uh, because I remember reading in a very old <clears throat> SRF magazine that Yogananda said he that in the beginning he was also a bit ashamed of having people pronouncing to them and touching his feet and so forth. And I remember after some time he said he got used to it. But I especially remember him saying that, uh, especially from avatars and big saints, there's a special current that emanates especially from the hands and from the feet. So for the people who are touching their feet, it's also something that is vibrationally, spiritually beneficial in different ways. But what I wanted to say in the beginning uh, was about like how sacred that soil is that, that you're mentioning about Mahavatar Babaji, that, that cave where he was. Uh, as we know from reading the autobiography of a yogi, I mean, Lahiri Mahashaya was there before in an incarnation with Mahavatar Babaji, probably meditating for years. I had the opportunity to visit the cave. As I think many, some of you also here have had the opportunity. And when I was there, one of the monks told me the story that Sri Dayamata went up to the cave. And she said that she also said, I remember being here in the previous <laughs> incarnation. So it seems that there was like a big uh, spiritual hub there of really advanced souls at some point. So that's how special that soil is. Uh, well done well done pablo we were thinking about how we could link our safe soil sadhu thing to this minute and somehow you've managed to put it off with legal poise <laughs> there's there's something that um uh i re i remember from the bible uh, uh and, and a story about jesus and it was about him washing the feet i think of a homeless man or a beggar um and you know i, I think I'm, I'm really vague in the story ba now, Baba, i think babaji was doing it in the kumila yes i don't know if it was, i don't know if it was jesus was jesus doing it as well i, I think i think there's i'm pretty sure there's parables of jesus doing okay. it I'm, I'm going back the to pope my... does it all the time right Who? The, pope, the pope always washes the feet of the poor people right because uh, that's the, yeah. but it, it's such a it was such a moving story to me at the time you know to sort of treat others as you would want yourself to be treated, you know, it was a really quite, almost like a literal manifestation of that principle in a way, like really take care of others as you'd like to be taken care of. Um, there's so many mentions uh, of feet <laughs> in autobiography of yogi. I just did a quick search on it. There's so many mentions of feet, sacred feet, bonded feet. There really is a significance um, in that to Yogananda, you know, it, this, you know, bond at the feet was 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 really was really significant. So uh, maybe some of the listeners have some of some favorite stories about this that they would like to share. But um, yeah, just just wanted to bring that up as well. Thank you, my heart, lotus feet of thy guru. Yeah, I, I would join in, but I would say to the listeners that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we can do a choir next time. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some people would appreciate it. I'm not sure. All right, let's move on to the next part, which is also um, a part of um, Hindu tradition. And it's, um, you see Brother Vishwananda lighting an instant stick. 
And then the question that I had was like, what, where is it actually coming from? And how old the tradition is this? And apparently it's a very old tradition. It's like even in the oldest Vedas that they found, they already mentioned a word of lighting incense sticks and also how to make them. And so this must have been used for thousands of years and is um, pretty common in, in Hindu households when they do their daily puja rituals, right? Um, and um, the idea is that you, um, the fragrance of the incense is kind of cleaning the air, um, not, maybe not literally, but, but the energy, like you are creating a, an energy that is clean and you can use to contemplate to God and you leave the world behind you. Kind of, this is, this is how I understood that. Chris? Yeah, I was curious about this myself as well um, when, when I was watching the minute. And it sort of triggered a memory when I was a kid, you know, sitting with my mom, uh, you know, I, I went to mass with her one day and, you know, you, you saw the, the priest go, going up and down an aisle with, um, he, he was swinging um, uh, like almost like a lantern of sorts and, and it had incense burning within it, right? And <clears throat> at the time, I just thought this was so unusual for this for this church. You know, I'd gone to a Protestant church as well, which was, you know, it's if anybody knows anything about Protestant uh, practices, they're very, very plain. You know, the, what, there's no decorations inside. It's very, very plain. So the, I don't think they do the incense burning there, but in, in Catholic church, they do. But no one could answer my questions. I was sitting there as a kid going, what is this? Why are they burnt? Like, what is that that they're burning? Why is it? It smells great. Like, but what, what is it? You know, so so alien to me. Um, I just find it curious that no one knew, not one person could even hazard a guess. You know, it was so removed from the practice. Um, but I know we do a lot, and so it's really curious to me as to why this is necessarily the case. But yes, Michael, I, um, Mike, I, I know as well, uh, or I've heard that um, certain types of incense clear negative energy. I think that they used it even in the Mayan um, uh, societies, it would come in to clear negative energy with incense. Um, but also one, one more physical kind of element to it is, is a memory trigger. So with smell that we have um, uh, connected very closely, you know, with memory in the brain. And so when you're burning incense, possibly it's just a simple, you know, good practice and method to get you into that zone. You know, maybe when you're meditating um, to kind of transport you back to that time and place when you previously smelt it, uh, that, that is going to be a good side effect at the very least. Um, but it triggers like your limbic um, system and and uh, I think it even helps release, you know, serotonin or endorphins or something like that in the brain. So it acts, acts like a very positive influence uh, influence on you. But but I'm curious, more curious about the more ethereal, um, spiritual elements of it myself. I'm not sure, but curious to find out more. Chris, did um, did did people consider you you as an annoying child? Yes. <laughs> yeah. very, very much yeah I got, I got told i remember asking too many questions about a train one day and got told to be quiet no. yeah me too i'm in the same camp maybe this 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 podcast is just for people that are annoying children somehow we we're together asking yeah, the same yeah. questions as adults as we did when we were children yeah. <laughs> Definitely. impossible Definitely. impossible questions
I, I like the, um, that you said um, that it's kind of triggering your memory, right? Mm. The smell, because I I feel like that often, especially like when you when you have the incense sticks. It always reminds me of some kind of um, <clears throat> religious kind of um, uh, like time when you when you celebrated something. Um, somebody gave me once a pack of those incense crystals to burn and I didn't really know what they were there. It said incense on it and I was like, okay, that's different. That's weird. Okay. So I I I I burned one of them and it and it had the same smell that you get when you go to a Catholic church, you know, when they burn the incense in this in this in this metal thingy and then swing it around, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my God, I'm in church now. This is crazy. <laughs> because it because like the sensation was basically like oh, that's the only time I smell this is there. Yeah. Pablo? Yeah, yeah, it was just, it's interesting that you mentioned this idea of like memory triggering, because uh, even it's not specifically about incense, but even some of the musical instruments that they use in church, for instance, the bell, they say that the bell is something to, that reminds, that tries to emulate the sound of own, like primal sound uh, in the universe. Uh, and, and that's something that is used uh, not only in the Catholic Church, but in different religions. And even if you think about some Hindu religions, they have other instruments that try to emulate different vibrations of the uh, different variations of the Aum sound. So memory triggering, triggering seems to be something that is very present in this context. Yeah. Yes. Also about engaging the senses. So one tradition, once I was uh, talking about Jabba meditation. So Jabba meditation is about um, basically repeating the holy prayer or name of God, etc. just repeating it. So, um, so the, 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 the part of the science in Jabba was to um, just completely engage your concentration. So, for example, you would light incense and then you would engage... <clears throat> the japa meditation with the fragrance of the incense so your nose would be in tune your eyes would be focused on perhaps a deity or um you know a form of god that's uh, in front of you so your vision is in tune um the sound your tongue is in tune because you're saying you're actually physically saying a name so your the taste buds basically are a, your your mouth is completely in tune and you're hearing the um you're hearing what you're saying and so then your ears are in tune and then you're actually you're you got mala beads here like i have and your your fingers are feeling in my case a rudraksh or a tulsi mala and you're feeling every single bead as you pass it over your your fingers so in that sense all five of your senses are um, engaged and therefore won't distract you from the object of your japa meditation and therefore then hope to take you to a higher state of meditation. And, and just to add on to that, um, supposedly some of them help with focus, um, focusing the mind, uh, you know, and overcoming stress, you know, the, the stress new, um, which of course, you know, with SRF is what we try to do. We try to focus the mind. We, we do the tensing and the breathing uh, techniques initially to try to then get into that relaxation kind of mode. And I think, wasn't it Frank, frankincense that Jesus was brought by the three kings, right? Mm -hmm. Frankincense and so, so this is, I think, what the church, Catholic church um, burns. Yeah. 
Nice. I, I never know what the difference is between frankincense and incense, but it's I'm sure there's people who know this. It's, a, it's taken from a taken from the tree, isn't it? The franken, frankincense, and it's like um, is it like the sap, like a sap or something from from the oh, tree? Okay. It's like taken from the base of a tree or something. Um, harvested, and then you can you can do lots of stuff with it, including burning it, which most people do. But it's medicinal, I think, as well. Um, frankincense. Yeah, it has a distinct different smell than the incense we use for meditation but yeah much stronger isn't it it yeah. really encaptures your um, nose is that your senses yeah mm. no. yes it does do that all right so <clears throat> so so much on the topic of incense what did you so think we... of the what did you oh, think yeah. of um the altar that uh, brother vishwananda oh, yeah made so there for pablo and for other listeners there's like a picture of babaji um there's a picture of guruji uh, with the garland of flowers which uh, you know it's quite a popular one there's a couple of flowers there's a candle there's an incense it's all like up against the wall so he's like made a makeshift altar i think it's in the cave um yeah what do you guys make of that so similar to your altar mike mm, not really but it's it's a really nice altar um, really big picture of Babaji, then a, a small Guruji picture. I mean, they are in Babaji's cave, so big picture <laughs> of Babaji is important. <laughs> then one candle, and just one candle lit in front of Babaji, and then all those flower garlands around it, and then the incense on the left. I think it's got some, got some nice touch to it. Like, Chris? I, I think... Um... I think it's lovely, very simple, um, not too not too cluttered yet. But the the, the candle that's lit, um, that as well has a significance in the meditation practice. I believe to to clear energies and to 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 allow for you know for a stronger meditation practice. So that I suppose that shouldn't be overlooked either. And why is there a candle burning? Um, but I, I think that's, uh, I think Sadhguru actually talks about this quite often, um, or not quite often, but there's YouTube videos of it. Um, uh, and he says, you know, always have a candle burning. And that, that really helps um, certain, I think not allows certain energies to to uh, take place um, in, in that space. So they've got a nice balance between the incense and the candles, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, I think the incense has a similar, I feel like it makes it feel more ceremonial when you have all those things, right? So if you want to do a long meditation and mm -hmm. like I, I do that sometimes when, especially during the pandemic, when we had all those long meditations at home, right? It was different. So then I was like, okay, I got all this incense. I got all those candles. So like two hours in, three hours in, I was like, okay, let's make this a bit more fancy around here. And, the neighbors came complained no, no. <laughs> yeah no but i feel like that you can make your home yeah your perfect temple right just mm -hmm. by with a few little touches like this i'm sure most people are I think I can personally, I go 
into deeper meditations at home than anywhere else. Mm. Well, it's maybe they say, isn't it, anchoring your your energetic spot if you go to that spot over and over again, right? Think yeah. Yeah, such that. Think about where you are. Yeah. I um I lock my meditation room now whenever my like I've got if my young nephew's coming, he obviously just messes everything up in there. So I just lock it up now. Like once I used to well, I wasn't here, but he came without when I wasn't here. And like he like he ha- must have handled one of Babaji's pictures and there's like a slight small scratch on it. I was like, oh no. I didn't think <laughs> Mama was like, but it's such a cute story. You'll think of him whenever you see that scratch. I was like, it's not really. <laughs> That's not really what I want to achieve when I'm meditating. <laughs> and Manisha, that's you. That's my sister-in-law. Terrible. It's, it's interesting that you said that you, you go deeper at your home, especially now that you were, that we were talking about Babaji's cave, because they have this story that Babaji once said, if I'm not mistaken, to Dayamata, that she said that has that famous sentence, you don't need to come to here you know to 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 meet me to feel my presence you know you can go into deep meditation wherever you are so it's exactly what you're saying mm-hmm. i mean also from your home you can yeah. go very deep you don't need to go to baba just cave necessarily mm-hmm. but it, it is important not to have the distractions right and to have your own areas set up uh, the guru talks about this um quite often to, to say you know, make sure, make sure you're, you're establishing that spot for yourself when you're not in the temple. Um, so yeah, good practice. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Good point. Um, that, um, uh, that, that's the Diamata story. Um, I think she did that for all of us. So we all know we don't have to go to Babaji's cave. Mm-hmm. If we actually i just remember that now i think like in the first convocation that i went uh, in los angeles i think it was like 2006 something like that i just remember that one of the nuns told this story about this devotee who went into a very deep meditation and that the, the nun was telling the story he found himself like teletransported astrally to to the himalayas and she found herself together like with Babaji for a moment, like in an astral vision. And then she said, oh, well, she was having like this amazing spiritual experience. But then the level of depth of concentration that was necessary for her to be in that environment, that super refined spiritual environment was so deep. She, she was doing a long meditation and she could handle to, man- to stay. She managed to stay there for a few, I don't know, seconds or minutes. And then she felt like that her concentration, she could not keep that level of concentration so deep to be able to remain in that uh, environment, in that stage. So at some point she couldn't uh, stick longer to that depth of meditation. And then she just went back you know, to her, <laughs> to wherever her physical body was. So that was the level of depth that was needed to be there. That's a fantastic story. I'm ho- hoping for experiences like that in the future. <laughs> <laughs> You're not seeing experiences in meditation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So let's move on in the minute because now Gurji, he's, you see all those pictures of him meditating and now he goes like, 
um, whenever he had the feeling to leave this work, Divine Mother comes and tells him, you have to go back. Takes him she, by the ear. <laughs> he does take him by the ear, yeah. <laughs> like yes. you, Chris. You know when you Chris, you know when you're asking all those annoying questions as a child, your mom's like, go back to your room <laughs> by the ear. Well, not not quite the same, but yeah. Um, I do I did wonder actually if you know on, on this topic, if any of you guys had this experience yourself, you know, have you experienced in some way the gravity of God's love, let's say, just pulling you back in when you're trying to get out of committing to something. Because here's Guruji again, you know, talking about, God, I really would love to just drop these organizational responsibilities, please. Just let me go back to meditate in the Himalayas to, to run my school and run, you know, and, and he just can't, he just can't break that, right? And, and, uh, and he's just being pulled back in, almost like a force of gravity, just pulling back onto the ground. Have you got any, any of you guys ever kind of experienced something similar? Don't jump in at all. For me, I feel like it's more like subtle things. It's it's more like I feel like every day you carry like a I don't know a basket of rocks, and Guruji tries to put in the maximum amount of rocks every day that he can, <laughs> but not too many. If it's too many, then he takes it away again. Like I feel like it's a bit like a balance like that with little things but not really i've not had the big confrontation where like i'm out and then no you're not <laughs> <laughs> you're out when i say you're out <laughs> <laughs> i was trying to do that in the arnie accent but i couldn't get couldn't bring bring it out You've just been in Austria recently, Priyank, as well. You should have been practicing. Yeah. Yes, yes. The Austrians really appreciate the Arnie accent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the experience that I had is not exactly what you're asking, but I think I have had probably two or three times throughout the whole, the whole time that I have been a devotee, there have been situations where I was either too obsessed about getting somewhere or getting something or when I was going through a difficult situation and I wasn't understanding, you know, how to, to go through that or, or I wasn't understanding why that was happening. And uh, someone, you know, would come up and tell me something and I would have the clear feeling that that person was not by themselves saying that, that it was a message from the guru. You know, it was just like a very strong feeling, you know, they didn't, they aren't actually saying that them by themselves is something, is the guru who's giving me that message. And I just remember like two or three times in my life when I had that very strong feeling in like those difficult or crucial moments. Yeah. And for me, it's much more um, subtle as well. So like, I remember after reading The Alchemist, I was obsessed with every single thing that I could, <laughs> that I could uh, consider as a Have sign. It for a reason. Have it for a reason. <laughs> I was like, why is that bird flown in that way, in that direction, for me to see it, with the sun in that direction, and the tree there, the wind blowing? <laughs> but I think that there, I think I, I've experienced that there is, um, uh, there is an underlying, uh, di like guidance, as it were. Um, or a pull. Um, I think I, so I, I, everything in the alchemist is just so mind blowing that it's just like, it's still with me as if I read it yesterday. Um, and like, 
so often I, I heed I heed to that um, to like that guidance that I kind of just sent sometimes through little subtle very subtle signs and whether it's like the type of person you're sitting next to on the train or it's like how your day has gone or how your energies are on a particular moment it's all somehow linked for your to your spiritual unfoldment and um either the more you trust your reading of it um obviously it takes it takes some significant sadhana to 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 do that but the more you trust it i think the more you can rely on it and the more actually the more the more is more more is revealed to you as it were and i'm not sure i'm making much sense no you make perfect sense we all know we're all on the intuition train Priyank, trying to develop our intuition better yeah yeah maybe maybe some of the listeners can you can kind of get drunk on these stories can't you in some ways they can be quite seductive to kind of hear you know to tell uh, they are somewhat a distraction you know just to kind of bring bring us back on on a point you know it's it's lovely and you know beautiful serendipitous moment, moments or whatever it might be um but uh you know not not to dwell too long but maybe some of the listeners have some some really cool stories to share uh, themselves um but it's funny you mentioned a, a train there Priyank, because that is probably the biggest moment where I was trying to get away from meeting a friend and life just told me to no you have to go you have to go and ended up through through a series of events you know meeting my now wife on a train I would never have met you know um otherwise uh and that that was a very clear moment for for me but slightly slightly different I know um but, uh, yeah if anybody else has any stories to share um ping them ping them to us we'd love to hear them involving trains yeah yes <laughs> nice so so we have we have um guruji said there's the message he he needs to go back but now we see all those pictures of him um and i was wondering if if anyone knew where they were unfortunately public you cannot see them now but there's like one picture where he is um, I would say it's like a bigger hermitage style building and he's he's meditating on um, uh, on top of a wall, I would say. Um, then there is um, another building where it looks like a Hindu shrine and, he, and he's walking past it. Um, I wonder he he looks like no he's an adult already so it might be it might be in Ranchi somewhere if I would have to guess any any guesses guys where where this I, picture I think it's from his I'm quite confident actually it's from his mm. trip to um, his trip in 1935 or oh, okay. you know, to India so and it could could it put, put one of those scenes could be um, his uh, when he went to Serampur to see Sri Yukteswar's ashram, you know, like when Sri Yukteswar left his body the first time. Ah, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that, that would make sense, yeah. Because mm -hmm. the, the scene kind of feels like that. Um, but Wasn't that well, wasn't that the Puri ashram where he left the body? Was it? I can't remember. I think, I think so. so. Okay. Yeah. But it could be the, it could be that one. It could be the Puri ashram as well. Or either one. Was it was the serum? Oh, so but just okay, I know I'm, I'm mixing stuff up. 
because there's also a Dakshinisvar ashram, right? But that that didn't exist back then, I think. Yeah, no, that and that wasn't a Sri Yukteswar. Yeah, no, I don't think yeah. that existed yeah. at the time. But yeah, it yeah, could yeah. also it could also be Ranchi, you're right. But I don't think I've seen any building like that from the pictures of Ranchi. Mm -hmm. Anyone knows? Yeah. Please tell us. Yes, if anyone knows, please tell us. Um, one thing that um, once a sentence that that came up in the movie was like how he says that for him non-attachment is the easy part. So he's kind of not really looking forward to going back to Mount Washington and running it again. He's he would be very happy just to meditate somewhere by himself and have communion with God instead. So I found I found that I found that striking. Whereas for a lot of people, it's the other way around that the attachment to the world is actually the thing that keeps us here. But he doesn't have that problem. He he spent all this effort into there, and and he would be just as happy to to leave it all there and say, "God, I'm with you now," mm. which I found very interesting. Yeah. Chris. I, I did find this very interesting as well, and for, from a from a couple of perspectives. One, one that yes, um, uh, Mike, as you point out, most people would have a difficult time with, um, you know, t tearing themselves away from the material planes and and uh, general life that we all you know, like drama that we all get caught up in. Um, but I, I did think to myself that you know we've talked about it before, and on certainly one level, it shows that Yogananda really did have a struggle with this with with his responsibilities in life as to what he could and should be doing and it is somewhat um of a solace to me to say that you know in life there's not really many guarantees you know there there, there may well be um some figure figuring out that you have to do along the way and you have to trust that intuition you have to go back to that inner peace and sanctum that you know we've talked about in the previous minute um and really, this is, you know, what is what we're being taught here, isn't it? That there's going to be a lot of ambiguity and you know decision making to do throughout life. You're not always going to know exactly what might be the best thing for you. And to surrender and to kind of go within and 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 listen to that voice in the back of your mind, maybe in the mandala blangari or something, um, to, by talking to you, saying like, hey, you know, th there's a bigger picture here. Um, maybe don't be selfish and, and do what maybe you purely want to do. You've got to, you've got to look after your, your brother and your brother and sisters as well. And yeah, it's, it's not all that clear. And so me, you know, looking at this thinking, okay, well, what lessons are there? It's a big one because, you know, there's so many opportunities in this life um, and to do, to do things and to be places and more than ever really, isn't there? You know, we've got so many opportunities and so many options you know, what to do, how to do it, it's a, it's a big question. So watching this just makes me think, okay, well, the answers aren't without, they're not, they're not in front of you, they're, they're within you. Um, and, and that's, and that's the real guide to turn to. And, and Yogananda is teaching us this um, through his trials and tribulations that, that we're watching and uh, which is quite well, well put in the documentary. Um, so yeah, that, that's just my take on it. You know, it, it's such a, it's such a good lesson. We've talked about it before. You know, is Yogananda is he is he more um, aware of this, and is he sort of going through the motions that sort of help help teach us in some ways, or 
um, is he legitimately, you know, fighting Maya as, as we are uh, and delusion as, as we are to some extent. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my, my take on it. Yeah, nice, thank you. Uh, Pablo? Yeah, I, I really liked what she said about being difficult to choose, you know, having so many options and not knowing exactly sometimes what we should do and, and, and then trying to, you know, rely on divi the divine connection on a personal relationship with God to try to, to find the right way. But um, I also wanted to come back to, to Mike's previous point about, you know, those great souls, you know, for them is the, the easiest part is non-attachment. And the first thing that uh, came to my mind when I heard about the story in the one minute was a similar, kind of similar story that Dayamata says when she had this near-death experience, I think in the 40s. I don't know if you are going to remember that. She tells in one of her books. She, so she has this near-death experience where she sees herself going into another realm of existence, probably a much higher astral or causal plane, you know, where she says, wow, I... I, I, I can see that I'm dying, but now I'm going into this much better plane, this much better place. And as she was going there, she heard, she said, Divine Mother's voice telling her, you know, my dear, this is death. Are you ready for it? And then she says, how can one not be ready for it? You know, I'm leaving this gross planet behind. I'm entering this amazing plane, you know, where there's so much more happiness, so much more fulfillment, so much more connection with God. But then Divine Mother comes back and says, what if I ask you to come back? Are you going to come back? <laughs> you know, and then she says, she felt like a thrill in her heart. Because at the same time that she didn't want to come back in that initial moment, she felt thrilled that God was asking her, you know, like that was the, the strength of her personal connection with God. That like she felt... Uh, not only the presence, but the, the joy in doing God's will, in, in being that presence and, and doing her will. So that's the first thing that came to my mind when Yogananda told that story, because in a different context, it's the same thing, you know, like having to do something that you don't want. And it's difficult, but at the same time, the fact that you have this personal relationship with God also is a source of strength and joy. Absolutely. Brian? Yes, the, the, so he, in this section, he says, walking away under the guise of renunciation, all non-attachment is the easy path. I was just thinking, who is this easy for? <laughs> uh, I think Pablo, Pablo mentioned it for like for saints, it's clearly easy for them <laughs> or realized master, it's easy for them to, uh, you know, non-attachment is easy for them. They've already mastered that, but we, as you know, <laughs> people that are still on this gross plane, not just on it, but actually not yet liberated from it. It's not the easy path. In fact, it's uh, we're stuck to the path of, you know, attachment and um, renunciation is difficult for us. I think if we so this this um, if we get to that state, then we will obviously be become a Yogananda or a Mahavatar Babaji, but uh, certainly for me, myself, um, I'm still there. Like, for example, I'm, I'm fasting today and, and even just one day yes. I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking about food. So how much is my uh, attachment to uh, gross sense pleasures must be quite high. And habits. Yeah. Yeah, go for it. 
Habits. I was just adding a word and habits. Yeah. This habit. Fasting is is fascinating like this because I feel like fasting is like you putting yourself on the plane of Kurukshetra and you get reminded of it every single moment of the day because you're hungry, right? So you really um, uh, fight the fight and you and you win it, right? So I feel like your spiritual strength. Um, gets increased every time you do a day of fasting. I think that's that's probably I like Guruji mentions all the health reasons, but he also says how it it strengthens your resolve and your willpower, right? So it like works in both ways for you. Yeah. But, but in some in some days that I fast, uh, which I do regularly, I don't feel any hunger, <laughs> any mm -hmm. thirst. So does that would that imply that on that day I have non-attachment for food? I can't speak or, to that. Like, I, I feel it every day I fast. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say, Chris? You were saying something. Yeah, I, I think uh, maybe Prank, you already sort of know this, but um, the, the, the cycles, and yeah, I'm sure Pablo and Mike, Michael, you, you guys are aware, of, given the teachings and the lessons that, that we have with SRF, um, is that, uh, you know, the body, the body needs to fast. So it's actually quite a physical need as much as it is a spiritual need in some ways. Um and, and it is the habits of this modern era that we have so many options to, to eat uh, food that, that we've developed yeah. this, this constant habit of eating. Um, so it's actually going back to more of the physical, basic physical demands of the body to rest and recuperate and to kind of go back to it. So it's probably, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's more, I remember asking Priyank, I think you and Mike one time about, uh, about fasting and uh, and the response was oh well you just need to listen to your body um so in general there's there's going to be that balance isn't there uh, the, the body needs needs that and that's probably a really difficult thing for some people who don't fast to, to hear because like, what the hell like <laughs> i'm always asking for food but, but i don't know yeah. if that's true yeah yeah Sri Yateshwa says the body is a treacherous friend right give it its due but no more mm. yeah yeah and to add a metaphysical element to it, Sadhguru, I think on one of his stories, said, um, Buddha, Buddha says that um, when, you, when you're hungry and you give away your food to someone else that may request it, you, get, you grow stronger both physically and mentally. Mm. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll remind my mum of that and thank her very much next time she's taking food off my plate, which she does. <laughs> when you're fasting. Yeah, no, when I'm up, we're out for dinner. My mom ends up taking you know half of the, she, she she jumps in and uh, helps herself. She's, I took she doesn't. I, I took this um, concept to the limit once when I think I was fasting. I was doing a dry fast, and um, I was at this ashram, and I was preparing food for people whilst fasting. So I was hoping this really is true. So like, if I'm feeding a hundred people whilst I'm fasting and hungry. <laughs> That I'm going to grow like a hundred times stronger, but I don't think it's worked. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe yeah, it has yeah. in some subtle unknown way. <laughs> There's, oh yeah, Chris. Well, well, you might never know if it actually does because um, uh, don't, don't they say that um, the the uh, blessings that you put off um, kind of compound over time. So you know if you don't if you don't bank them bank them somehow if you or if if you don't cash them in uh, they actually compound to to greater to greater benefit but it, it is 
you know, quite an interesting topic. And I know we don't want to spend too long on this now, but um, fasting when you're in relationships and, and with partners and families. And um, if you're fasting, maybe your partner or family, you know, family members aren't, it is challenging because, you know, if you're cooking, if they're cooking, that is a big thing where, you know, it is something to, to, to really um, consider. And that's a nice thing to think about, Frank, the next time when I'm, I'm looking to fast, my wife isn't, for example, I'm just going to take that courage. I'm going to set that inside. This is, this is even more beneficial for me to do it today. <laughs> yes. You'll grow twice as fast. Yeah. Maybe, maybe like maybe I did grow a hundredfold, but maybe I was starting from a really, really weak position. So I only went to just a mediocre position. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like that. No, no. Um, yeah, I love that subject as well, fasting. But um, um, I think we're we're about to wrap up. We have one more picture here. We have um, busy street scene. I think it's somewhere East Coast America in the twenties, um, Boston or something. Street cars, horses, loads of people. Um, kind of like the movie wants to show us what Gurji is getting himself back into after all the serene beach and mountain um, sceneries in Mexico, back to this madness, basically, right? That's that's kind of um, how the minute ends, Chris. Yeah, and it's a good inclusion by the, um, by, by, by the movie producers, documentary producers. Um, it's chaos, it's absolute chaos. There's also order in the chaos, because like, like a tram goes, everyone stops, and another tram goes in the other direction. So it's like there's chaos, but there's order. So the jungle of civilization, <laughs> the jungle of civilization is yeah. Yeah, and there's throngs and throngs of people, all trying to get over this string. Chris is really lagging up, but yeah. Yes. Yeah. And the point, way yeah. that they stop their hands and stopping the the throng of people, the crowds of people just walking in front of the train. Um, obviously today we've got so much order in the world, but that. Um, it's it's madness, isn't it? When, when you look back, at the health and safety officers of today would have uh, <laughs> they would, they would, uh, have nightmares just looking at this. <laughs> yeah, especially in the U.S., like that's like became much more of a car culture, and people moved out to the suburbs. Like this, those pictures, they I don't think they happen much anymore mm. in the cities here. Okay, so this wraps up made it 52 pretty well, unless somebody else has anything else to add. Chris has got a question. Yeah. No, no, I, I was just going to make a comment. I've never been to India. I really do want to go. It's on my bucket list. There's pilgrimages, you know, uh, mm. that I want to do. But I've heard, you know, India is, is quite chaotic. You know, there's so many people. There's the cities are just um, are, are packed, you know, and when I watched this video, I almost thought, you know, maybe this is what some parts of India can be like because it's um, a, a, a little bit behind the development of the United States. Um, and, you know, Guruji is com coming in at a time when, you know, there, there's a lot of um, instability in, in civilization. Uh, and to be able to take that on and to kind of run head first, you know, we all do this every single day. Um, is is doing God's work in some ways, isn't it? So um, 
uh, to try to bring you know order and joy into into lives of of your you know uh, fellow fellow citizens. So um, yeah, when, when you look at this chaos and you're going to end this thinking, well, gosh, do I really have do I really have to take this on, or you know, could I just be in my orderly um, kind of you know metaphorical cave in Himalayas? Um, so yeah, uh, just uh, just to reiterate your point, Mike, you know, it definitely definitely is um, a re really re relevant video to include there. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say, I mean, especially for you when you go to India the first time, I think uh, like you have to see beyond, you know, like this <laughs> initial chaos that for Westerners can be really like bewildering in the first moment, you know, to, to feel its spirituality, because uh, <laughs> it can be quite chaotic, like from the material point of view at the same point, but, you know, it's really about getting true spirit of the place mm. yeah. it's mind you guys oh yeah go yeah go on chris mike sorry finish yeah mind you guys that this is the india that guruji wanted to go back to right and oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> so, i think sorry sorry isn't i didn't raise my hand but isn't the isn't there a good story of um the um one of the biggest spiritual gatherings in india i forget the name of it kumbh mela kumbh mela yeah where um was it uh oh gosh i i'm i can't remember the exact story but um was it that story where you know there there was <laughs> a good um learning uh to take take from that that's similar to this where um, there's just chaos and uh, there's you know, spiritual people mixing with you know, worldly people um you've got to kind of look for the gems within that in some ways um but then it's all gems ultimately for yeah. him b is like this this part was be like the wise ant that can um, cipher decipher the sand grain sugar. from the sugar mm -hmm. granule and it's just a heap of the sugar from the sand yeah something like that yeah <laughs> fantastic all right guys thank you all for joining thank you pablo for coming on for this minute being our special guest and this is time second time second time second time guest yeah this wraps up minute 52 um thank you jay guru everybody jay guru jay guru, jay guru.